Hi, welcome to another NBC Church podcast. We hope that this message encourages, equips, challenges and edifies you in your walk with Christ. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with whoever you know. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's good to be here again in your midst. And uh, the last time I preached here it was Easter Saturday morning. And there was a congregation of one person whose name was Bambrick, and he was sat right there. But I gather the word went out through the airwaves, so praise God for that. Let's just uh, pray together the words that he taught us, could we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would engraft this word into our hearts, our minds, our spirits, to our understanding. Grant us now that spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you, Lord Jesus, better and grow in grace and be conformed to your image and therefore shine as bright lights reflecting the Father's glory in this dark and growing darker world, Lord. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that phrase in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. But how many of you know it's not the best translation of the words that Jesus actually spoke? The best translation of the words that Jesus actually spoke in that prayer is save us from the time of trial. And you'll see this over and over again. The word trial and the word temptation, depending on your translation of the Bible, get that wrong. Get that slightly out of sync and you can miss the significance of part of what Jesus is saying. So, lead us not into temptation. James tells us that God tempts no person. How many of you have ever been tempted in your life, including your Christian life, perhaps even especially in your Christian life, to do wrong? I have, many, many times. And that was just yesterday. I'm exaggerating there slightly, but you know we find ourselves tempted over and over again. So did God not hear that prayer? Or does it actually mean, save us from the time of trial, the time of tribulation that God is bringing upon this planet and the church of Jesus Christ has actually been praying to be delivered from that time of trial, that time of tribulation for the last nearly 2,000 years? I'll leave you to work out the implications of that because that's not what I'm preaching on today. What I'm preaching on today is God's statement of intent. The title for today's message is simply Statement or Statements of Intent. A statement of of intent is a formal notice that the author or speaker intends with all seriousness to do something given certain circumstances and at a certain time. 
And God's statement of intent, I put to you, we heard earlier at the beginning of Exodus 6, and I'm going to read it because it's relatively brief again. In Exodus 6, God appears to Moses, speaks to Moses, and he says something very, very interesting. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, the Almighty One, the One who is always more than enough. Praise God that if you've met Jesus Christ, if you have tasted of his grace, then you have met the God who is always more than enough. For your circumstances, for your community's circumstances, for your church's circumstances, for this nation's circumstances, for the whole world's circumstances, El Shaddai, the God who is always more than enough. But then he says to Moses, but they didn't know me as Yahweh. They didn't know me as the self-existent one who keeps his promises, who keeps covenant. So I'm now speaking to you as Yahweh, as the self-existent one, the one who does not need anything or anyone else to maintain or sustain himself or his goodness and who keeps covenant. Another way of putting that is keeps his promises to a thousand generations. So hear me, Moses, God says, because that's, that's how I'm going to speak to you now. And in verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out. Now here's the statement of intent. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, point one. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, point two. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, point number three. Notice especially point number three. We're going to return to that in a little while. Number four, I will take you to be my people. That's uh, four. And I will be your God. That's five. My bookmark slipped. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will, this is number six, bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. That's number seven. And then he says again, I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one who always keeps his promises, who keeps covenant, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, to a thousand generations, which means forever. So there's God's sevenfold statement of intent. Any of you know anything about numbers, you would know that the number seven always refers to spiritual perfection, which is why the book of Revelation is full of the number seven and 70 and other multiples of seven, because everything is being spiritually perfected by the Lord Jesus Christ. A sevenfold statement of intent about what God is going to do for and with and in the people that he has chosen to set his love on. And in case you didn't get it, beginning of verse 6, I am Yahweh. Therefore, these sevenfold statements of intent that I'm making today will come to pass. And then right at the end of verse 8, I am Yahweh. How do you know they're going to come to pass? Because I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Now, for the Christian, the Christian is sometimes tempted because unfortunately, through many centuries, much of the Christian church has divorced itself from its Jewish roots. So we get ideas, for example, like that at the Last Supper, Jesus instituted, 
Notice that word instituted, communion. He did nothing of the sort. He celebrated Passover, the Seder meal with his friends, a meal that had existed since God, Yahweh, told Moses to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes in Egypt. And the Seder Passover meal had been celebrated and still is celebrated every single year ever since. Jesus brought fresh revelation about himself and the nature of his purposes for and through his church to that meal, but he did not institute something called communion or the Lord's Supper. Why do I say that now? I'll tell you why I say that now. Because in that sevenfold statement of intent that we have just read at the beginning of the book of Exodus, four of the four statements, four of those first, exactly the first four statements of intent there, are actually the statements that Jews proclaim when they take a cup of wine during that Seder Passover meal. And you're going to see in a moment why that matters. So let me show you what I mean. At the Passover meal, which is still celebrated by Jews to this day, there are two cups of wine before the food is eaten. And there are two cups of wine after the food is eaten. They also put a fifth cup of wine over on one side, just in case Elijah shows up to bring in the Messiah, which as far as I know... Elijah's never shown up yet at any Passover meal in any Jewish household since Jesus lived. That ought to be telling them something, but maybe, you know, maybe that's still to come. So anyway, two before the food, two after the food. So let's look for this statement of intent of God as to what that might mean. Verse 6 again. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And at that point, the Jews drink their first symbolic cup of wine well it's an actual cup of wine that they drink before they eat and I will deliver you from slavery or bondage to them that's cup number two and then they eat the Passover meal and then cup number three is drunk and this is what it proclaims I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Because Luke chapter 22, verse 20, literally tells us, and I, I give you the idea, intentionally tells us what Jesus said when he took and shared that third cup. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now comes the third cup, the cup of redemption. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That specifically equates to that third statement of intent, in Exodus 6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of deliverance. And Jesus specifically states at that point, this cup, this one, the cup of redemption and the cup of judgment is my covenant, is my covenant with you in my blood. So he's saying 
that when he dies the next day on that cross, two things from God's statement of intent are being literally and historically fulfilled. He is redeeming his people, buying them back, setting them free, making them his own, cancelling their sin. And he is also pronouncing in his own body and being judgment upon sin. That's the third cup. Let's just look at the fourth. I will take you to be my people. So anybody who drinks the cup after the bread, because Jesus paid it all, securing our redemption and receiving judgment upon human sin, becomes his own. God's statement of intent. We'll come back to that statement of intent in a little while. In the Song of Moses, in Exodus 15, part of which was our second reading this morning, we see the statement of intent of Satan in the form of Pharaoh. You will notice in Exodus 15 verse 9 that Pharaoh is spoken of as the enemy. And then we get the enemy's statement of intent. It's sixfold. There are four I wills, depending on what version you're using of the Bible. The NASB has five I wills, and there is one I shall. In other words, the statement of intention, the statement of intent of Satan, the enemy, has got six parts to it, which is one short of seven. Because whatever Satan promises people always falls short. Verse 9. The enemy said, this is Exodus 15, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. These are boastful statements about what Satan through Pharaoh is going to do to God's redeemed people. And remember, in Exodus 6, the sevenfold statement of intent of God was bracketed by I am Yahweh and I am Yahweh. This statement of intent is bracketed as follows. The enemy said, boastfully, and then verse 10, you, addressing God, blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Because the enemy, through Pharaoh, set himself up to oppose the deliverance of God, the statement of intent of God, and barely as the words left his mouth, he was nowhere to be found. That statement of intent of Satan reminds me of something. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. If you look at it again, it's all about what he's going to do in terms of destruction and devouring and everything else like that. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this. Be sober, be alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The only safety from Satan, I put to you, is the word of God. And what the word of God points us to. 
So we've looked briefly in Exodus 6 and Exodus 15 at the statement of intent of Almighty God and the statement of intent of Satan. Which one are you going to choose? I mean, really, if it wasn't for COVID-19, not only should this sanctuary be packed this morning, and it could be packed if we didn't still have COVID-19 restrictions in position, but when you look, when the human eye looks at what God promises and what Satan says he's going to do, why aren't churches packed to the rafters? There's a church in Edinburgh, Scotland, for those that don't know where Edinburgh is. It's called P's and G's. It used to be called St. Paul's and St. George's. But in the modern day, we like to shorten everything, so they just call it P's and G's Church. Prior to March the 22nd, P's and G's Church used to have about a 1,000 people through its door every Sunday. They had about four services. Within two weeks of the coronavirus restriction, their congregations online had skyrocketed to 8,000 people per Sunday and have continued to grow. They are now running four new believers courses online every single week because the first one got full and then the second one got full and then the third one got full and then the fourth one is nearly full. Praise God for that. What's that about? Perhaps it's somewhat about the fact that people don't like to be that conspicuous in today's world. So I don't know how to go to church. People might say something to me and I won't know what to say back. I'll make myself look foolish. My kids will make a noise. I might make a noise in the wrong place and I'll get all embarrassed about it. But P's and G's church in Edinburgh has discovered whatever the reason people are looking for answers and no wonder when you see and when we look at the promises of God to his people let's think a little bit more clearly about who God was speaking to when he called the people of Israel to leave Egypt well you see he was talking to Israel because they were in slavery in Egypt that is true when Israel went into Egypt, it says a family of 70 of them went up to Egypt, or went down to Egypt. Jacob was amongst them. They were referred to as a big, large family. In the early chapters of Exodus, you will also find that God refers to Israel as the host of Israel. My people, or this people, or my congregation, or this congregation. After the Exodus, and after the Song of Moses, which we've looked at part of today in Exodus 15, he starts to call them his nation. They're no longer just a congregation or a people or a host or a family. They're his nation. Because shortly after the Exodus, they get their constitution. And their constitution is a tenfold unfolding of God's character and nature. We know it as the Ten Commandments. Here's your answer. 
as to why churches are not full when the statement of intent is so clear and so strong and so full of blessing for all people everywhere. The human heart is deceitful and wicked and sick in the extreme. I'm not pointing at you because yours is particularly more so than anybody else's, David, but you've said it this morning, so I'm bringing that back to you. We don't like to feel that our sins are coming out into the light of God's judgment as illustrated, as determined by the Ten Commandments. But notice what Christ did with that third cup. He said, this is the cup of redemption and the cup of judgment. Allow yourself to be judged by what I'm doing today or tomorrow on the cross. And you need fear judgment never, ever, ever again. Because you'll be mine. You'll be redeemed. And the second thing I want you to notice about who God gave these promises and expressed this statement of intent to, if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn to it. Exodus 12, verse 38. It tells us that there was a mixed multitude went up out of Egypt. It wasn't just historic based on the family of Jacob bloodline people that left Egypt. There were other slaves from other parts of Egypt. There were Egyptian taskmasters that saw the writing on the wall. They were probably members of Pharaoh's own household. They all thought to themselves, am I going to trust the world's greatest superpower? Or am I going to trust this God who is getting these people to put the blood over the lintel and the doorposts of their houses? And some decided that they were going to stay with the world's greatest superpower. And others decided, no, I'm out of here. I don't care who Pharaoh thinks he is. This God of Israel means something because I see it in the way his people function. So, we've looked at God's sevenfold statement of intent, and we've looked at Satan's sixfold statement of intent, and we've asked, what are you going to choose? Because those are the only two choices on offer. Let's look at what the people of Israel did with their choice. In the Song of Moses, there are three I wills in the first two verses of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. So this became the people of Israel. Remember, they were a mixed multitude. They were not yet a nation. They were about to be once they got their constitution. But this is what they say. Three things they say they are going to do from here on. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... I will sing to the Lord. There's statement of intention number one. I'm just going to sing. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. Or as Peter read this morning, I will make him a habitation of praise. My father's God and I will exalt or extol him. To exalt or extol simply means to praise enthusiastically. The word entheu meaning in God. So if you do anything enthusiastically, you are doing it by rights in God. The only thing that is asked of the people of God 
as they leave slavery and bondage and become God's people is just to proclaim it. To proclaim him. To sing about him. To speak about him. And to do it enthusiastically. That's all we got to do. Those of you that think it is hard to be a Christian, have you not got a mouth? Can you not open it and sing? And if that's a bit tough right now, because you're a bit nervous about singing, well, just sing in the shower. But sing about him. Sing to him. Or sing under your breath. Because that's all they're called to do. You will not see any other request or statement or requirement made of the people of God in this song other than sing and praise and do it enthusiastically. And as we think about the implications of that, I want to draw your attention to verses 19, 20 and 21 of Exodus 15. The song that opened, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. At the end of verse 18, ends rather abruptly, wonderfully nonetheless, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And then we get Moses giving this little bit of commentary again, and speaking of his sister. But notice in verses 20 and 21 how Miriam is introduced. Because I want to suggest to you today that there is something in the way that Miriam is introduced in these verses that gives us a lot of understanding about what we are called to do and how we are called to live as we praise and sing God's praises in these days. Verse 19, this is Moses speaking a commentary. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel, mixed multitude, remember, walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, first description of Miriam, the sister of Aaron, second description of Miriam, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. This is a repeat of verse 1. This is a repeat of the opening of the Song of Moses. Which, remember, the Song of Moses is sung in Revelation 15, verses 3 to 4, along with the Song of the Lamb. This is a very, very, very important song for a Christian to know. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam here brings this song home. But let's think about how she's introduced. She's introduced firstly as a prophetess. Now there are only three women in the whole of scripture that are introduced or described as prophetesses. Miriam is the first. Deborah of Deborah and Barak fame is the second. And Anna, who came into the temple when Jesus' parents had brought him in to be circumcised on the eighth day of his earthly life, is the third prophetess that's mentioned. The daughters of Philip, the virgin daughters of Philip in the book of Acts, are described as virgin daughters who prophesied, but they are not described as prophetesses. There's only three prophetesses mentioned in the whole of Scripture. And this is the first. So when did she prophesy? We'll answer that in a minute once we look at the second detail with which she's introduced. The sister of Aaron. 
Hang on. There's something missing. Because if she's the sister of Aaron, surely she has to be the sister of Moses as well. Did Moses forget that? Was he just being unduly humble when he wrote that? Why is she only introduced as the sister of Aaron? I put to you, there's a clue there as to one of the times when Miriam, the prophetess, prophesied. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. The birth of Moses. And we're all warm now, so you don't mind if the preacher goes on a little bit longer, because I'm going to read this in full, because it warrants reading. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now we know that she's already got other children, because in a moment his sister's introduced. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, they are, they've already got other children, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And here's Miriam's first act of prophecy. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Unbeknown to her, she'd just given Moses back to his mother and paid her for the privilege. How good is that when God's at work? So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses means to be drawn through or drawn out of the water. And what does 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2 tell us? They were all of them baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Moses himself was drawn out of the water. And then the people of God at the Exodus went through the water. They were baptised into Moses, but that's a different sermon, so I won't go too far into that one. What we want to focus on today, in what we've just read, is verse 4 of Exodus 2. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Here's the spirit of prophecy operating through Miriam. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and, and inquired or watched carefully. There's what Miriam did. They watched carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So God gave revelation to Miriam as she stood back and watched. There is something so, so important for the Christian in the days that we've just been living through. 
We should be reading our Bibles. We should be praising him from whom all blessings flow. We should be fellowshipping with one another. But we should also be taking the time to step back and to say to God, Lord, what are you doing through this time? What do you want to do with me through this time? And God obviously answered little Miriam because faith without works is dead. And when she realized what God was doing through this encounter that she was watching by the River Nile, she goes to Pharaoh's daughter, a little Hebrew slave girl, had the nerve to go to Pharaoh's daughter and utter some words and ask a question. And God used those words to bring blessing like Miriam couldn't have imagined. She was just a little girl concerned about her baby brother. But Moses would not have got the name that he got if Miriam hadn't have obeyed the voice of the Spirit speaking to her. So there's one instance of Miriam being a prophetess. The second, however, is in the uh, passage we've just read, Exodus 15. Notice the context. The Israelites have just come out in haste from the world's greatest superpower. They've been told by God, you're going to have to get out quick because he's going to change his mind. So you're going to have to have unleavened bread for your journey because it's not going to have time to bake. They left in haste. But Exodus 15, 20, verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. How come she knew to pack a tambourine? How come all the women of Israel, this mixed multitude, knew to pack tambourines? If you were going on an emergency journey on pain or fear of your life, and there's a couple of million of you, you're leaving in haste. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to make your way through a Red Sea as it parts to let you through. Would you take your tambourine? How did Miriam know to pack a tambourine? Because by the time the deliverance had happened, it was too late to say, oh, shucks, I forgot my tambourine. I wish I'd brought it, but I didn't know God was going to do this. And that's the whole point. Miriam had a spirit in her that knew that if God calls somebody out of somewhere, he's going to bring them in. That if he delivers from bondage and slavery, he's going to lead to a land flowing with milk and honey. So this beautiful prophetess, and let's face it, later in Miriam's story, we find that she was a mixture like the rest of us are. She fell prey to some not very good sin later on in her life, did Miriam, and became a leper as a result. But the lesson there is we're all a mixture until he's finished with us. At this point in the story, she was anticipating to be praising her God. And she got the privilege, along with the women of Israel, of bringing this song home to its tonic, to its home note. 
That's what it means to live as people of praise in a dark, tumultuous, unprecedented, like unprecedented has never been used for years or centuries before, David. We anticipate that our God has the victory, that the God who leads out, the God who starts a work, will finish it. And how did Miriam know this? Let's turn back to Exodus 6 and we'll finish with this. Let's notice the reaction from most of the people to God's statement of intention. Verses 6 to 8 of Exodus 6, there's the sevenfold statement of intent from God. I am Yahweh, therefore these seven things will happen. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So two things on which to finish. Number one, the people were more mindful of their circumstances than they were of what God had just told them. That's tragic. When we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, and we somehow get our minds so fixed on our circumstances that we miss the fullness of what he has promised us. But clearly, there were women in their midst, women of faith, including the prophetess Miriam, who, yes, they were aware of the circumstances. They were aware of the harsh slavery they'd been laboring under for 340 years almost. But they said, no. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That I might not sin against you by missing the opportunity to praise you when the world around me is losing its head or losing its bearings. We live in tumultuous, unprecedented times. We are called as Christians to watch and to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? What are you saying? Grant me revelation from your word. But above all, we are called to be people of praise who pull out the tambourines or their modern day equivalent and praise the God from whom all blessings flow. Because that third cup of the said meal has freed us from judgment including the judgment that's coming upon this earth in the tribulation, and it's not far away, and redeemed us from sin. Praise God for Miriam, and praise God for his statement of intent in Exodus chapter 6. Let's pray. Loving God and gracious Heavenly Father, May we be people of the word that so live in the light of your word, Lord, that your praises are never far from our lips, that our hearts truly do, as, David, as Peter read this morning, Lord, become a habitation for your spirit, a habitation of praise. Wherever any of us, Lord, have recently got our eyes too much on circumstances, 
too much on what this world is going through. Shift our gaze back to you, Lord, would you? That like Miriam, we might be given the privilege of bringing the song home in that sphere of responsibility, Lord, in which you've placed us. We ask these things in and through the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for church today. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Subscribe to this podcast, consider giving us a five-star review and share this on social media with whoever you can. NBC Church is on 10am Sundays at 1 McDonald Street, Naracord. God's blessings on your week.